Does anyone have any leftover questions from previous evenings? I guess we skipped a class last week because of the uh, because we were we gave in to the demons of the sound system. So they had their day, so now they've had their turn. Okay, number 132. The master favored calm, determined renunciation over emotional world rejection. When one feels emotional rejection, there usually lingers inside him also a subconscious attraction. During a discussion with me in his desert retreat, he told me the following story. I met a young woman years ago in Mexico City. She taught yoga and was very committed to this path. One day I asked her, how do you feel about marriage? Her answer quite surprised me. I have given my life to God, she fairly fairly shouted with intense vehemence, and I will continue to serve him alone without a mate, faithfully, devotedly, every year of my life, forever until I die. My goodness, I exclaimed. (laughs) Why that emotion? One must renounce feelings also. I was going to compliment you on your spiritual commitment. Seek God lovingly and one-pointedly, but seek him also with deep calmness. And the way I've thought about this, because it's a very, um, it's a tricky business, because a lot of times you, if you're too lackadaisical, then you, you don't have the clarity of mind to hold to your commitment when you need it. But whenever people talk like that, whatever the subject may be, you know, I've sworn off ice cream forever. <laughs> I've had my last pint of ice cream, whatever it might be. <laughs> There's always, you always feel a little uneasy about it because it's, it's not centered. And his comment, Swamp Master's comment, that that kind of fierceness is really just talking about that it's, it's really still a big war. So you have to understand that he's not talking about la- lack of strength. The way I've tried to think about it is what we really want is not to be compelled. So it isn't so much a question that we need to feel that this is bad and I'll never do it. But just rather, I don't want to be compelled to do anything. I want all my decisions to be made from a point of of calm center. And so if one is determined, as that woman was determined not to fall into the um, temptation, as it appeared to her, of taking a mate and getting all involved in what all that that might mean for her, what she really wants to concentrate on is her inner state of freedom and her self-mastery. And the, the object is actually much less important than that calm ability in all circumstances to make a decision without having the decision made for you because you have no capacity. And it's, it's not, a, by any means, an easy matter. I, I'm not sure whether I told the story here in another context, but I remember once a Swamiji was... Forgive me if I just recently told you this, but Swamiji was working with someone who had a very, very strong desire to take their life in a particular direction, but they were so determined to sort of act as if they had no desires that Swamiji actually recommended um, the opposite of what he knew the person wanted because when confronted with that, they had to admit that they really had no choice but to follow what they their own desires. And very often in our lives, and Swami just wanted them to admit it. it. Really, he was less concerned about what they did than that they had the self-honesty to say, this is what I feel. Because 
if we're just trying to mask a subconscious desire that we're hiding from ourselves, we're, we're, we have not only the issue of the subconscious desire, but we have the whole second issue of creating a complex about having that desire. And the complexes are often much harder to eradicate um, than the issue itself. The issue itself is clear-cut. You know, I, I wish I didn't feel this way, but I do. I intend to resist it because I can see it's not in my best interest. I hope I win, right? But the complex about it has to do with, oh, I feel guilty because I feel this way. This isn't really what God wants me to do. God must be upset with me because I'm doing this. Why do I always fail? What is it that's wrong with me? And that just goes on, really, many more incarnations. And often that whole syndrome is far more crippling spiritually than the ice cream or the husband or whatever it might be. Because that is a lack of, uh, what would you say? It's a lack of self-honesty, which is a problem. It's also a lack of trust in God. That, that I, how I am is not acceptable to God. And this whole thought that I should be something other than I am. We can say I aspire to be something other than I am, which is a very valid way to feel because, well, speaking for myself, I hope this isn't it. <laughs> I hope this isn't the end point of my personal evolution. <laughs> I mean, it's not bad. It's nothing to be ashamed of, but God knows I don't want to stop here, and he does know I don't want to stop here. So there's no should about it. I, if I could be better, I would be better. But this is just what it is. But I certainly aspire to be more. And that's very honorable. But to feel guilty because I'm not, you see how different that is? Or to feel frightened because I might not be as good as I hope to be. Um, okay, yes. Um, all the shirts are just ego-affirming. The example you cited anyway. Yeah, it is. It's because to say I should be this is to say, um, why am I not better, you know, I should be better than I am. They're sort of tainted with self-concern. Self-concern is a good word for it. It's tell, yes. Are you, are you just, you're just husbanding it. You're not really, okay. <laughs> um, so, let me think. But anyway, the example is comical. Every, every time you hear yourself in your own mind, unless you're, Swamiji would often make jokes about wrong attitudes, and this was, you know, one he would tease. I'd rather die then. But even Swami himself, when he said to Master, he was talking about a very serious, you know, inclination as a monk to still have a, an inclination towards sexuality. And Swami said, I'd rather die before I give in to this. And Master said, oh, why speak of dying? <laughs> you know, it's like, don't, just don't be so serious about it. Everything will resolve itself in time. Master, Swami asked, Master, help me give up my desire for good food. And Master just said, oh, when ecstasy comes, everything goes. Now, some of our qualities are far more serious than that. I mean, we can have really serious temptations, either toward licentiousness or alcoholism or uh, all kinds of indulgences that are, you know, that, that really don't rank high on the great um, scale of God-reminding activities. But if it is what we are, and the other thing that I, I remember a friend of mine who... Uh, I think the issue had to do with body image. You know, she was always, as I put it, she was always at war with her own body. That was it. And uh, I can't remember how we got into the discussion, but 
I wanted to, she was talking about what she was going to do with fasting or something like that. And, and she sort of tried to shut me up when I was going to, because she thought I was just going to say, don't do it, as I often did. But I, I finally got her to hear me. And all I said was, as long as I've known you, you've been at war with yourself. And I've just, I've never seen that it either makes you better or makes you happier. It's, it's like, when, when will you, who, are, who is the enemy here? I mean, this is who, who you are. You, and, it, and it was also because it was body image, it was extremely exaggerated. It wasn't even like a, a genuine problem. It was just a, a concept which made it worse. But still there was that always being at war with yourself. And, and now this has to be balanced against the battle of Kurukshetra, which is the definition of the spiritual path. But we're not at war with ourselves. We're at war with inclinations that are not happiness producing and that we need to um, sort out where our happiness comes from. But that whole attitude of always feeling that you're, you're, I am an enemy of myself, um, I don't think it's pleasing to God. And it, it leads to this kind of imbalance. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a subtle point, but it's an important one. He goes through a lot of them right here in this whole section. 133. There was a man lying unconscious in a hospital room, the master told us. He was near death. Uh, a blood clot had formed in his heart. A friend of his asked me to intercede. So I prayed for him in a superconscious state. All at once, a great power went out of me. This is exactly how Jesus puts it, isn't it? I'm sure Master used that word on purpose. All at once, a great power went out of me. At that very moment, the man sat up in bed, completely healed. Obviously, Master was at a distance, and no one even knew he was praying for him, probably. The nurse who had been attending him in that room testified later that a moment before the man had sat up, she had heard an explosion and seen a great flash of light. Can you imagine what kind of energy Master passed across to that man? And, you know, we, we just, there's so many things in this world that uh, we don't know anything about. And why, why does it suddenly take that form, an explosion and a flash of light? Master's somewhere in a superconscious state and completely, you know, time and space is just all gone away. And there he is, just with him and then uh, karma is just energy locked in a certain pattern. This man had the karma to have the blood clot and to be in that condition, but it was just energy. And Master applied enough energy in another direction, which manifested as both sound and light, that it just reconstructed, just reorganized. Master's will reorganized the molecules of the man's body into something completely other than it had been. Oh, my goodness. I just reread uh, The Law of Miracles in Autobiography of a Yogi. And you just, you read these chapters about what is possible. And I mean, I at least for the, you know, maybe the 50th time, tried very hard to understand what was being said. And, you know, I get one word out of five, maybe one concept out of 10, just to really get the picture of how different this world is than we think it is. It's just, it's really stunning when you think about on a day-to-day basis, the, the reality that we subconsciously, continuously affirm instead of the reality that we um, have some inkling 
is actually true. We just operate according to this very, very long-standing habit about how this planet works. Um, but it, it works differently. So my Swami writes these, this book. Okay, number 134. Dr. Lewis told us the story. I was called away from the Master's presence one Sunday evening to the telephone. To my serious concern, I learned that my daughter Brenda had just been stricken with convulsions. When the Master heard this, he stepped briefly behind a screen. In several other instances in this book, where a Master needs to do some kind of prayer, he steps behind a screen. It just must have been something in his room that was his custom. Maybe his, his meditation area was behind that screen, but it always was put like that. He stepped behind the screen like he was a magician. He stepped behind the screen, and then when he came out, some miracle had happened. So anyway, so Master stepped behind the screen. A few moments later, he emerged, smiling. Don't worry, doctor, he told me. She will be all right. Confidently, he added, and she will never have another one. Brenda was completely cured. Moreover, she has never had another seizure. Um, imagine also, I mean, you can hear this written all these years later. Did, did Dr. Lewis have to struggle to believe in that? Did they still take her to a doctor? Did they, did they worry? Did they put all worry aside? You know, the, the, the power of accepting that is also part of it. Sometimes uh, I remember, uh, this is not true for a child like Brenda, but this woman named, who later became known as Peace Pilgrim, she's a woman who walked around the United States. There's a very nice book about her life. She had, uh, she says almost nothing about her previous life before she just took to the road. But, but she says a little. She had been, uh, had discovered she had healing power. And she was able to uh, change people's physical reality. And because she could, she did. And then she had a, a, a patient, a woman who had uh, MS and was deteriorating with MS. And because she was able to, she took her, she took the disease away from her. And when she became well, her husband said, well, now that you're well, I'm going to leave you. (laughs) Because he'd just been sticking with her out of loyalty for her infirmity. So not long after he left, she just began to manifest all the symptoms again. And I believe there was one other incident of a similar nature where she took symptoms away, but then the circumstances of the person's life, they wanted to bring the symptoms back. And that was when Peace Pilgrim realized it isn't just a question of whether I can, it's obviously a question of whether I should. Um, because circumstances are just what they are. A person not only has to receive it, but they also have to be able to hold it. And this is Dr. Lewis for his daughter, and his daughter, apparently either in herself or, or through her parents, was able to hold it. But that's also the, uh, a really important part of it. I'll talk a little bit more about the whole thing when we come to a later one. Okay, was there any, are there any questions here? Number 135. There was an old man, a disciple of the Master's, who wanted to visit his guru at Mount Washington. The Master instructed him, go by streetcar to the bottom of the hill. When you get there, phone up, and I'll have someone drive down and pick you up. I've just been reading Durgamata's book, and this business of driving up and down Mount Washington to pick people up at the bottom of the hill was sort of a regular part of life because it was so difficult such a long, hard climb. The man, however, when he reached the bottom of the hill, decided to walk up to the ashram. He had no idea that the way was so long and so steep. 
Apart from his age, he was handicapped by a severe pain in his back. He had been walking only a short distance when the pain grew excruciating. He was also exhausted from fatigue. He simply wasn't able to proceed any further. He also, however, couldn't retrace his steps. So he sat down by the roadside, helpless. That's the story of our lives a lot of times, isn't it? Halfway there, can't go back, can't go forward. We just sit on the collapse where we're standing and pray to be rescued, <laughs> which we seldom are, but this man was. Just then, a car that was coming up the hill stopped beside him, and the driver called to him, Get in! Gladly, the man accepted. As they continued up the hill, the driver commented, I don't know what made me come this way. I usually come by another route. Can you imagine? When the master greeted his elderly disciple, he remarked, I had to work Uh, I had to work a bit to get that man to come your way. (laughs) It's just so uh, natural. You can just hear Master saying that. You know, yeah, I had to work a bit to get him. I got you picked up, but it wasn't easy. He then placed his hand caressingly on the man's back, and the pain vanished instantly. This is the same story as the cauliflower robbery, isn't it? Where there's a man driving on the road, and it's the radio receiving stations, and... Master sees his disciple there who's in great need and how is he going to solve the problem? So he he finds somewhere in the ether somebody who's vibrating in such a way that he's going to be able to um, direct him there. But who knows what the man had fixed in his head. But still he was receptive enough for Master to get through to him. It also tells you when we make decisions, why are we making those decisions? What is really influencing us when you suddenly get it into your head to go off and do something? Where does it come from? Yes, did you have a comment? Yeah, just uh, a little bit late, but on that business about what happens when you um, disturb the, an individual's karma, and you said, well, part of the issue is, well, can the person hold the change? But also, it can be just uh, downright wrong to take away the karma in the first place. On the, uh, it can, it, it, uh, it kind of interferes and perhaps prevents the person from uh, using that karma to progress. Yep. That's the same question as whether it's right to take it away. You know, we, have a, we have a tendency to think on this planet our concept of good means easy and pleasurable. And so is easy and pleasurable always good? I mean, we just have a strong bias as uh, egoic souls to think that easy and pleasurable is good. But um, what we really want is to be freed from being compelled and sometimes it's, it's a hard road to... It's not, I mean, it's easy to say these things, but it's very hard in the moment to actually be that even-minded. We can come back to it, but I mean, what I mean is we can struggle our way back to it, but yeah, we, we have to be realistic. Any other comments or questions here? Pardon me? You cannot save people from their karma. That was a hard lesson. I, I mean, not that I've ever had anything remotely resembling the power to actually change someone's karma. But I used to expend a lot of willpower to help them manage it, um, which was mostly an exercise in confusion on my part. Having a lot of energy, I would uh, just try to help people manage their lives. And, and not that they uh, didn't appreciate the help, But it was an out-of-balance action on my part, which I finally realized came from a lack of confidence 
in God making the right decision and giving them the karma and a lack of respect for their ability to deal with what God had given them, that they're, how are they ever going to manage without me? Uh, which was uh, a well-meaning but misdirected use of my willpower. And to have the uh, maturity of mind to, re- to not be compelled. You see, this is what it all comes down to. If you, if you, uh, if you apply that template to almost all circumstances in your life, you'll realize that it's being compelled I don't mean compelled by God, but acting compulsively, you know, just out of <clears throat> anxiety or, or, or uh, exaggerated sense of your own importance or um, desires that you can't resist and just not being able to really calmly assess what is in the highest and best interest of everyone here. Um, compulsion is always the, uh, the downfall. Yes. In a related story, I remember seeing a, a YouTube video, which was an interview with a nun who had lived with Sister Gyanamanta for many yeah. years. And one of the stories she told was that she had started a habit of praying to take away other people's sickness and karma onto herself. Th- this woman had. This woman. Yeah. And, um, and she had started having some success. And she yeah. confided this to Sister Gyanamanta, who by that time was very old and wise and was the, the confessor for all of the nuns. And, uh, and she said, you have no idea what you're doing with you, ab- dealing with. You absolutely must stop. Wow, she basically told her, you, you may have the ability to do this, but you don't have the ability to, yet to understand when it's appropriate to do it. And wow, interesting. Uh, she, she was very, very firm with her about that. Very so. interesting. You know, it is interesting. In some context, oh, I think it was in the Ask Asha book. That's where I ended up writing it. Someone was talking, asked me about taking on the karma of others. And when I researched it in order to answer that question, Master in Autobiography of a Yogi says that by an advanced yoga technique, you know, masters and other highly advanced souls can take the karma of others. He might refer to it else in another place, but that's the primary reference that I recall. But what was interesting to me is that Master, in, especially in his early lectures and so on, he would exhort people you know, in, in ways to say, like, you know, if your limb is severed by your willpower, you can grow it back. And he would exhort people to, to be able to do all sorts of things, but he never exhorted anyone to do that. He never, and he didn't even really say anything. He just said, by an advanced technique, this can be done. And it, it, was, it was significant to me for just those reasons, because, one, it's uh, enormously difficult to do. But the other side of it is you have to be able to see the whole karmic picture to really know what it is that's supposed to happen right at this point. And yes, by if you have enough power, you might be able to divert the energy. But are you diverting it for their well-being, for your well-being? You know, what are you messing about with here? It's really, um, really something. What, what was the, just a second, I had a thought that just went out of my head. Let me find it for a minute here. Um, Oh, I remember. There was a, this was a small incident at Anand and didn't have anything to do with taking karma, but it was an interesting nonetheless. There was a, a, a man, uh, he, he was involved in the music. He's, he's long since gone on it. And he was directing a choir at a period of time. And for some reason, something happened. And Swamiji took a very strong stand with him because he didn't feel that the decisions the man made were the right ones. And he, he very, and I think publicly, spoke very strongly what his point of view was. And then afterwards, someone wrote to Swami and said, you know, essentially, 
They didn't say, why did you do what you did, but you shouldn't have done what you did, as people were, um, people do. You know, they just shake their fingers when they feel annoyed. And Swamiji's response to his critic was very interesting. Swamiji said, for me to explain to you why I responded to him the way I did, I would have to tell you more about him than you have any right to know. And that always stayed in my mind. You know, you just didn't know where he was coming from. And he wasn't going to justify himself by breaking that confidence. It's just, I know what I'm doing and you don't. I, the way I, I began to understand Swami, I, would, I got this little picture in my mind like a movie screen or a television screen. I mean, many years later I worked on a movie and so I know what's going on outside the frame. But when you watch a movie, you just see what's going on inside the frame and you really don't know you know, that the microphone guy is standing right here and the, the this is there and the, all that stuff around it. But I, would, I, I discovered in my, relation, in my attempts to understand what's, why Swami did what he did, especially why he related to people in a certain way, is that I would watch it from one edge of the frame to the other. And I would see a, a certain trajectory of energy. There would be an interaction and this is what it would look like. And in, within that frame, my perception might be, might be true. You know, it might have been an impatient, seemingly impatient or a... a why wasn't he listening or something kind of response but Swami was never operating within this frame he was operating with a trajectory that started who knows where and he knew where it was heading and so his action within the frame was quite appropriate and I know this because he often explained I would ask him or he would just just volunteer because he knew I needed to understand these why did you talk to someone like that he wouldn't tell me more than I needed, I had any right to know. But he would tell me enough so that I could understand that would also give me the interest in understanding him instead of criticizing him. And very often it was, you know, it was some long-standing, either a, a karmic situation or just a long-standing, very subtle attitude correction that he was working with that other people wouldn't even know anything about because he, he had so many... Uh, you know, everything was individual. He had all these individual relationships going, and you didn't know, you didn't even know who he was relating to, what to speak, what the content of that was. It was just completely outside the little box that we could see. And so it is with us. I mean, it's a useful way to think about yourself, because when thus and so happens within the context of this box, within the context of the box, you may be right. Somebody's really done you in and done you badly. But is that where we want to, do we want our reality to end with what we can remember and what we can anticipate? Or have we actually um, embraced something that is before we can remember and will be after we can anticipate at this point? It's just a whole different view of things. I, I, I know in my life, as by now reincarnation is so um, cellular, no, they're just. I, I just don't. I don't have. A, I don't have to try to think in terms of lives before and lives afterwards. But everything is so different, just so completely different. When that's an unquestioned part, I know somewhere in the autobiography, I believe it's in there. There's this phrase about the inescapability of divine law, and there's a statement that that certain things hinge upon an acceptance of the inescapability of divine law. And that's a, a, a point of faith and commitment 
that we, we, we really need to come to within ourselves. It, it's not that we're still, it doesn't mean that we're necessarily at peace with it. But there's a, a big part of us that just knows it's inescapable. And even if we're going to suffer and rebel and wish it were different and sit down on the curb and wait to be rescued, there's no part of us that actually thinks that we can escape. It's, it's just going to happen. And that it's, it's a very powerful uh, transition point. And how whatever context it's set in, that's exactly what it says. Inescapability. And divine law means the law of karma. Meaning, it wouldn't happen to me if it wasn't mine. No matter how moronic and ill-tempered and evil the instrument, <laughs> he wouldn't have picked on me if it wasn't my karma for it to happen. So it, I often say to people, sometimes it's worse because you actually are right. <laughs> You're correct in your analysis of the situation. It's utterly unfair and it shouldn't have happened. But it did. And that's just a, another subtle part of the game is that you're absolutely right, but you're still wrong. <laughs> because here it is. I remember once I was accused, this, this rarely happened to me, it was just one incident. I was accused of some kind of semi-dishonorable thing. Not, not super serious, but, but semi-serious. But I was accused. But I was innocent. You've got to believe me. I was. But I realized that it was just for uh, it was just a lucky accident that I was innocent. <laughs> that it was it was perfectly within my um, my within my the capacity of my evil twin to have done it. <laughs> it just happened that I hadn't. So it was it was it got to be sort of fun to be accused because I felt well like I was just I was working it out for when I got away with it, and I was also. Um, it was a preemptive strike against my <laughs> the possible inclination that I would. But in other words, karma is always fair. That's one of the reasons, and you have to apply this intelligently. In sadhu, beware. Swami says, don't, don't bother to explain yourself and don't try to justify yourself. Just let it stand. You, know, you have to apply that appropriately, but still, sometimes just let it stand. If you didn't, des- if you didn't really deserve it, you still deserved it. Just let it stand. <laughs> Yes, Tandava. So I, um, I was thinking about, you know, trying to help people or heal people or, or whatever it is. It's such a tricky situation because, you know, obviously that's something we also want to be doing exactly. is helping, helping other folks. Um, and so I was, I was trying to think what Master did say a, about it. And the main thing that was coming to mind was the healing prayer. Divine Mother, manifest thy healing presence. And it explicitly does not give any specifics. Right, exactly. It says, God, you go there and sort it out. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's where my responsibility ends. Yeah, um, a, as, yeah. you know, and it may not be the right thing that they get healed, but if God is there, it doesn't matter. Another way to think about it is in terms of the chakras because oftentimes the heart is touched by something and you see suffering and, and one becomes anxious and wants to alleviate that suffering, which is not in itself a bad impulse. But in terms of the chakras, if, if you act only from that first impulse, you may or may not be acting in an ideal way. But if you take that sympathetic impulse and offer it up to the spiritual eye, 
and say, oh, you know, Master, oh, oh, Divine Mother, look at that person suffering. What do you want me to do about it? And then you're much more likely to have a response that is resonant with your sympathy, but also more in tune uh, from a higher level. Because when we talk about inner guidance, uh, there's many voices inside of us, and it's, it's progressive to respond to a higher and higher octave of your inner voices. And in the training course for following your inner guidance, if, you've, if you're completely uh, controlled by external forces, merely to have an opinion, even if it's a purely ego-based selfish opinion, is still progress. Because you're acknowledging that I too have a right in this. But once you um, establish your individuality and your, their confidence in speaking, then you want to ask yourself, of the many voices inside of me, which one do I want to listen to? And that's where it begins to get subtle. Because you can have a very sympathetic response. And if you've lifted yourself up to have a sympathetic response, I mean over time... Then you have to take that sympathetic response and ask God, what is the best thing here? That's what Peace Pilgrim was discovering. She had the power to heal, but she had to ask more carefully, um, not merely, how can I alleviate and help this person, but how do you want me to help this person? So you get a good answer from the heart, but you get a better answer from the spiritual eye, is what it really amounts to. You know, I had that a little bit we were talking uh, before we went on camera, before we went on the recording, about elderly relatives and the, um, the necessity to allow every individual's karmic cycle to run. And uh, I, I remember, I've, in, in the um, death vigils that I've been part of, or the, the long-term care for elderly relatives, you know, the... the the absolute necessity for that soul to follow its own karma to the end without any interference from you, either interference that says, oh, please don't go, or interference that says, come on already, can't you just like finish? That body is just not serving you. How do we know? Even when you see someone who's very, you know, who's miserable, who appears to be suffering, how do you know? Maybe those last days of suffering are going to expiate, you know, a whole lifetime of suffering. How do we know? But this is where you have to be not compelled. It's exactly the same. It's the same word. It always comes back to that word, not compelled. Did you have a question, Ekater? During the, the pilgrimages to India, and we see these beggars that are so disabled, is that what happens when people get really upset when they see that? Like their sympathies go out to them, but they just... I don't know, they, yeah, there's, I don't know if it's emotional attachment or they well, can't redirect it. When I had the experience, as most of you know, I, uh, of leading pilgrimages to India about 12 times um, over, over the course of 20 years, starting in 1986, in 1986, and India changed a lot in those years, that's why I mentioned the timing. Um, modernized, got a whole lot of things happened since 1986. And mostly, uh, the people we took were from America. Mostly they'd never been to any third world country, 
Mostly they'd never been to India, with very few exceptions. We took not less than 30 people, and once or twice we took 50 or so. Um, so it was a lot of people over time, some repeats, but mostly individuals. And uh, I observed uh, an enormous uh, spectrum of responses to uh, the, 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 what for Americans were just the unexpected blatant poverty. People, America is very, very uh, segregated in terms of economics. You know, just poor people don't live with rich people. Even middle class people don't live with lower middle class people. We're just all very separated. In India, even just a, as a, a paradox, even now I believe, in this very nice neighborhood where we've had our ashram north, outside of Delhi in Gorgaon, where there's a lot of building going on, very, very well-to-do people live in the houses, and the people who are building houses for other well-to-do people camp on the site where they're building. So right next to where some, you know, very highly economically advanced person lives, right next to them there's a whole encampment of laborers with their wives and their children and their laundry on the line and just the whole thing. So it's just like right next door all the time. Um, plus especially Calcutta is the city that always stands out where we stayed in a five-star hotel but uh, they, they subsequently redesigned the hotel but at that time the front door you just walked right onto the sidewalk and it was like number one territory for beggars because it was such a wealthy hotel that served uh, catered to Westerners so there was just this huge um, civilization on the sidewalk out just right outside the wall and when you were, depending on which hotel room you had you could also watch on the sidewalk. And we were there sometimes for a number of days and you could watch you know, the whole life of this family that lived in you know, a, a, th a three, three yard square piece of sidewalk, which was their house with their family and their kids and their cooking and everything. You could just watch them the whole time. Plus much more intense, difficult scenes. But I, the spectrum of response, I, I, I tried to understand because some people were just completely at ease with it. And others were just totally beside themselves, just could, could hardly function. And what, what I began to see was the, the key factor really had nothing to do with the poverty or the suffering or the beggars. It had to do to the degree to which the individual had become reconciled to the necessity for suffering as a, a path to spiritual freedom. And the degree to which the individual was in rebellion against it and afraid of it and always wanting things to be different than they were, when they would see that much blatant seeming suffering in front of them, it just would put them into an absolute panic because they had no category of their mind where this was okay. And it's not really okay that people are hungry and or anything like that, but it's okay that God is moving souls through their necessary experience. It's not, there's nothing wrong here. It's just simply happening as it must happen, and it has to do with the inescapability of divine law. Um, and then your response to it, I mean, your, your action or non-action is based upon your karma. You're based upon, I feel agitated in my heart, let me lift this to the spiritual eye and ask, what is supposed to happen here. See, part of this, and this, this has to do with the caste system, 
at, at the shudra, which is the lowest level of the caste, and the second level is the vaisha level, and the image of the vaisha is the merchant, I, I, value given for value gained. It's not selfless, but it's fair. I give you something, you give me something. That's our deal. That's the merchant picture. But the, the reality of the Vaisha level is uh, the way I alleviate suffering is to fix my world so that nothing happens in it that causes me pain. In other words, the problem is what's going on out there. So what, what's going on out there needs to change because I feel bad. And even though it's unfortunate to have to say it. This compelling desire to make the world perfect this really comes from the Vaisha level. I'm suffering, you have to change. You're poor, it makes me unhappy. Somebody give him something to eat. And it, maybe you want to give him something to eat, but if you're compelled because you're so uncomfortable because he's hungry and there's no part of you that can lift the question up and say, God is in charge... And that doesn't make it any better that he's hungry, but it changes your perspective on it. The kshatriya, which is after the Vaishya level, is the soldier, warrior, king. And king, in this sense, is the opposite of what we see in, in our world now. But the idea of a king is that he's the selfless servant of his people. And the, the idea of a warrior or a soldier is that he's disciplined and he sacrifices himself for a cause greater than himself. And so the, the, the picture even of a warrior is someone who is highly disciplined and his power comes from inside and, and he moves as he is supposed to move regardless of the circumstances. In other words, the kshatriya begins to understand, ah, my state of mind is really about what's going on inside of me. And the, the picture of the warrior is actually that we begin to do a battle with our own inclination to need to make the outside world a certain way for us to feel all right on the inside. And so that's the shift. And it, most of us, I mean, we, we, we shift between Vaishya Kshatriya and then Kshatriya Brahman, which is the surrender to God. We sort of are running all of that. But what would happen in India was the degree to which people were still caught in a Vaishya way of thinking, which if the world doesn't meet my standards, I suffer, and therefore I panic if it doesn't meet my standards because you go to a developing country where all kinds of things are happening that you don't see on this side, and you know people just panic because the whole country is out of control as far as you can see, and there's nothing you can do about it. And it, it was unhinging until they could come to some peace. But it's a very, very good challenge to see. Then you decide you lift your sympathy to your spiritual eye and you say, what am I supposed to do about it? And many people are called to help alleviate that kind of suffering. It's a, it's a, very, it's a very valid spiritual practice, but it's more valid if you're doing it um, as a kshatriya exercise than as a vaisya compulsion. That was Mother Teresa of Calcutta. I'm not helping the poor, Mother Teresa said. I'm doing what Jesus asked me to do. It was completely different. We thought she was helping the poor. She was doing what Jesus asked her to do. It was, it was really a Brahmin action on her part rather than a Vaishya one at all. And she was, she was quite impersonal about the poor. In Swami's comment once, when we watched a very good documentary about Mother Teresa and saw her picking up people from the streets, and we were walking out of the movie, and Swami said, I'm saying this out loud in a public place, but he said, 
I really couldn't say this to very many people, but you know, when you see some of those dying beggars on the streets and they come in close, you can see in their eyes how they got there. <laughs> I mean, you could just see their consciousness, and their consciousness brought them right to that position. And of course, it also they had the good karma to have a saint pick them up. But he said it was it was no mystery. That's a, that's sort of the impersonal quality of a saint. Where Swamiji said, "I can tell at a glance who a person is and what their what their what their consciousness is." He said, "I just a glance." So he sees someone, and he sees somebody having the appropriate lesson. Where what is there to panic about? Because how else are they going to get free unless they have the appropriate lesson? So see, that's also, again, it comes back to us. How am I going to get free unless I have the appropriate lesson? How is this person going to get free unless he has the appropriate lesson? Do I want to take that opportunity away from him? Do I want this old person really to die today instead of a week from now? If this, even though apparent suffering, is going to give them the appropriate lesson for freedom, is, do I, I mean, why would I take that away from them? Because it makes me so uncomfortable to see them suffering. Is that their problem? Is that mine? Uh, the spiritual path just rips all those usual ways of thinking things to pieces. Isn't it great? <laughs> Let's take a break. <laughs> um, some of the rest, some of the, the one or two more coming up, at least one more, no, several more stories that we're coming to, which I'm not going to quite read yet, have to do with other in instances where Master either healed someone or, or healed them of death in a couple of instances. And I was uh, thinking about, because not, by no means, when, when Master said that Brenda would be okay, um, Dr. Lewis's daughter would be okay and would never have another seizure, it doesn't actually say that Master healed her. It just says that she would be okay and that she wouldn't have another seizure. Did, was that his intercession or was that his simple perception? In other cases here, he was asked to pray for someone and uh, some kind of a miracle happened and I was thinking about the, this, the vast unseen world in which there, all, there are these links that are happening uh, where Master is linked to this soul in a way that that could happen even though there's no apparent outward link. And Master uses the phrase, I felt power go out of me, which is the same phrase that Jesus uses in the Bible when the woman touches the hem of his garment. Who touched me? I felt power go out of me. Um, that we, we can't really... We don't always, um, well, we usually don't. We just don't know what's happening. What I was going to say is, it, in the last days of Tushti's life, in the last week or so, very close to the end, but while she was still t uh, talking, though, out of the blue, she asked me about this uh, certain uh, man and his wife who used to be part of Ananda but had, had gone away. And she said, how is so-and-so? And, and then she couldn't quite remember his wife's name, and I, I filled in his wife's name, yes. And then, and then she said, you know, I pray for them a lot. He's very confused. If you had asked me if Tushi had even known these people, I would have, and I spoke to her husband later. I said, do you have any? She said, no, I've never seen any relationship there. But she wasn't talking at all. She was very far away. She was silent much of the time. Then she turns and asks me about this person, says, I pray for them. He's very confused. And he is very confused. It's just like, it really helped me remember, we just really don't know what's going on. When, when um, Paula died, which is the story I tell in my book about Swami, 
um, who, we, we were friends. Uh, we were good friends. She was a mentor to me, and I really had great admiration for her. But in the moment her soul transitioned, when she left this world and went to the other, and I felt her soul as, a, as an astral wind is the only way I can describe it. <clears throat> I felt this great angelic force pass over my head. And the words I said out loud, I didn't realize we were so close. And I was, I was there at her deathbed. I was one of 30 people there, so it wasn't like I'd been singled out. <clears throat> but it was just the sudden realization that what we see is such a tiny part of where all these um, inner relationships happen and where they go. And in Autobiography of a Yogi, I think I said this the other night at the Guru Day retreat of uh, Resurrection of Sri Yukteswar when he talks about we go to the astral world and we meet all of our other brothers and sisters and wives and husbands and mothers and fathers and friends. And, and, and I love the phrase, at first we're confused because we don't know who our particular ones are. And then we realize that we're equally connected to all of them. So just imagine only some of them are with us in each incarnation. We're only with some of them. We, can only, we only can be with some of them. It just, uh, it, it makes a person think a bit. <laughs> you just have to stop and get very humble and, and very, very interested and less didactic about the way things are because you just don't know. That's the same thing. Don't be compelled. Take a moment. Hold it in your heart. Lift it to your spiritual eye and see, see what this is about. Many people who've had death and return experiences, notably Dr. Ritchie, whose marvelous return from tomorrow is really one of the absolute best, who had, his mother had died, his father had remarried. He'd allowed himself to be influenced by his grandparents, his mother's, his, his natural mother's, parents who didn't want him they were just selfish and they didn't want him to accept the new mother and the new mother was a lovely person who tried as much as she could and he was just a stinker and um, when he died and ha had to face Jesus on this issue he was, he was mortified to see how mean he'd been that this very kind and loving woman had done her best to take care of him and partly goaded on by his selfish grandparents but also it was his own fault he was just so ashamed of himself but he also came out of that realizing every encounter is important you never have any idea what's actually going on and you think it doesn't matter but it matters a great deal because you just don't know what what the links are and what's being formed you know that that doesn't mean that you can't progress through life in a normal fashion but uh, you have to be open-hearted. And he also commented that so much of what we think is important isn't, and so much of what we think was unimportant was very important because it had to do with our consciousness, whereas we think that what the things of our life are what matter. Whereas, and this is something also that I was speaking of the other night, was Swami said that, the goal of life is not achievement. The goal of life is attunement with God. And if we seek attunement, then achievement may, if it's God's will, also come. But if we only seek achievement, we may stumble into attunement, but there's no guarantee. And that's when you think in terms of attunement, you think in terms of uh, being an instrument. The Master said, 
No one crossed his path without a reason. And in a real sense, that's true for us. Not quite as dramatically, certainly. But interestingly, Master used to go down to the Bowery District, apparently, in Los Angeles, and he would walk up and down outside the bars. Just in, uh, These are really um, suffering souls. He had some destiny. He was looking for his people and to uplift them. No one crossed his path by accident. Amazing. But n- n- without pride... Uh, without false, without a false sense of importance, it doesn't hurt us to feel that way. To feel that everyone who comes in front of us is Divine Mother herself, and whatever whatever the appropriate interaction is, we can nonetheless give it our whole hearts. I remember with the beggars, speaking of the beggars in India, I also had a, a way of dealing with it. I was saying during the break, I, I had a long-standing habit, I just... I don't like to carry a purse, so I often don't carry money. And when I was on the, the trip in India, I was always with a group, and I, I rarely had any money on me. So the question of giving money to beggars just didn't arise because it just wasn't my habit to have money. And uh, I just let other people take care of me when it's needed. But uh, I realized that you can, give to, you can give to people who are asking you for money in lots of ways. And one of them is just an open-hearted acknowledgement of their existence. Because so often, uh, when, you, when somebody is asking something of you you don't want to give, you're, you, you shrink down in yourself. So I would just try to be an instrument, I mean, not necessarily have a deep interaction, because honestly, some of those people were not pleasant. And you didn't really want to open yourself to them, because it was just really nothing you wanted to be part of. But even without making eye contact, you can still emanate. That was where I came up with the, the mantra that I used a lot. Divine Mother, bless us all. <laughs> that was my mantra. Because I felt caught, you know, in the difficulties too. And I just didn't want to say bless them. Just Divine Mother, bless us all. And I would just sort of move through those with the prayer that whatever it, whatever it is that you're trying to make happen and that you're trying to help these poor suffering souls through, let's... Let's get on with it, okay? <laughs> and that, that's how you, uh, that's how, I, how you can express an opinion, uh, but still be in a state of cooperation. That was the prayer I developed for my parents in the end of their lives. Divine Mother, because they, especially my mother, after my mother died, my father's situation was easier because he was a little mentally off, but he was quite cheerful. My mother was struggling with physical difficulties and she, she, it was just it was much more dramatic and, and uh, stressful and stressful for my dad so I wanted it to be over I thought I wrote to Swami at a certain point perhaps it's time for them to take an astral vacation what do you think? <laughs> but uh, I, my prayer became Divine Mother whatever it is you're trying to teach them give them the receptivity the devotion and the humility to learn it and that was a way of pushing with my willpower for it to go forward, but in a way that cooperated rather than rebelled against what was happening. And I found that to be a real godsend in a lot of circumstances. Whatever it is you're trying to teach them, Divine Mother, help them to learn it. And then I might add, and quickly if you can, <laughs> because sometimes I had to say, because I don't have a lot of stamina left. And, or, and then you can, of course, add whatever it is you're trying to teach me. 
um, give me the ability to learn it because I don't have a lot of stamina. We need to get through this. And it works. You see, if you find a way, and this goes back to our, our complexes at the beginning, you find a way to be completely sincere, that you're not putting on a front. I wrote a letter to someone not too long ago. It was a very sensitive letter. I had to say a lot of things, and it's really interesting. There was one phrase in there that wasn't quite sincere, and I've it's, and I, I really understood what sincere means. I I just presented myself in a way uh, that wasn't exactly the truth, and I just it keeps niggling at me and I have to keep deciding oh do I have to send you know a PS and just rewrite two words and I realize nobody cares but me just leave it but it was very interesting to me that because Swami often talks about sincerity he, he says it interestingly in terms of his music every note he said was completely sincere he, every note he said exactly what he wanted to say in his music and in his writing too sincere means it's an, it's an honest expression of what I can really say before we went on camera here on the recording, um, I was commenting about Michelle Obama's speech, which was just given the last day. This is this is being recorded at July 2016, and so that was. And uh, first, she's a, you know superb spokesperson, and she is either a brilliant speechwriter or has a brilliant speechwriter, whichever one. It was perfect, but was also interesting. I have no idea about her actual relationship to the candidate or anything, but. One can suspect that it hasn't always been hunky-dory. But what was so marvelous in her speech was she found a way to say everything that needed to be said for the situation, which is to endorse the candidate and to really get everybody interested in wanting to be with her. But every, you could tell every word was true. She, she didn't put herself into a position where she had to mouth something she couldn't actually say, but she found things that she could say that were just right, that were very strong. And that's part of what the power of it is. You can see that this is completely sincere. And so often, especially in politicians and public figures, there's playing to the crowd. It's just, it's so annoying. I had, this is, I'm on politics for one minute. I'll stay here for another minute. Back in the 70s, which must have been the first time that Jerry Brown was running for governor in the U.S., is that right? And he actually owned land for a while right up next to Ananda, so he was a little bit part of our world up there. He sold that land. Yeah, he did. He owned land up there. Anyway, of all things, I had a dream. I had a dream that included Jerry Brown, and he sort of had this, because he had a lot of charisma at that point, and he kind of seemed like some worthwhile figure. So he was speaking in town. He was campaigning or whatever he was campaigning for, and I went into town to hear him because, I don't know, I dreamt about him. It seemed so weird to me, so I just went to hear him. And he was smart and like that, but then somebody asked him a question. And, you know, I'm a public speaker, so I get this. It's partly because I'm so tuned into words, and I know, and, and I know what it is to answer somebody's questions. And I watched him. It was such a cheap shot. It was like somebody asked him some question, and instead of being genuine, he just played it. And it was just like, oh, I don't have any use for you. You know, sincerity is everything. And that was also, you've heard me tell that story, because that was the compliment that Swami gave me many years ago that I thought was like the, the biggest also ran that I'd ever heard. You know, you're, he said so many nice things about everybody, and to me he just said I was very sincere. It just seemed like... Uh, 
he just couldn't think of anything else to say, and so that's what he had to say. But later when he saw that I had taken it as, as just damning with faint praise, that's how I heard it, he just looked at me so startled. He said, sincerity is everything. And over many, many, many years, including just this last letter I wrote, I see what a nuance that is. It's like you, one must really get into the habit of, of being absolutely authentic in what you say, completely sincere. And if you can't be sincere, be quiet. <laughs> because otherwise you mess up your magnetism. And it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning about that woman, I won't, I won't, I, won't, I don't ever want to. Well, it's, it's all twisted. It's not just a sincere statement. You know, that I, I want to live my life for God and this is my intention. It just becomes all dramatic and confused. It's, 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 it's extremely important to be very exact. Swami was so exact in his speech. When, I, when he was uh, <laughs> teaching me to write by rejecting all of my writing, which he, you know, he took some pieces of it, but his, com- his comments were always absolutely exact, and therefore I could always trust him. You know, this is okay. <laughs> we can use this. This is good. <laughs> Sometimes this is excellent. But when he said it was excellent, it was excellent. And I knew for an absolute fact it was more than good. And, and, and what that created, the, the level of trust that that created between us, uh, can't be overstated because he was always sincere. He found a way in every circumstance to say exactly what he meant. You know, even if it was awkward or difficult, he still found a way to say it. And that, that is definitely a, a, a truth. And th- that's also um, uh, Patanjali's uh, principle of truthfulness. And what is the fruit of that? That the universe, your, your word will manifest. So it, it's very important not to fritter your power away with half-truths and casual truths and insincere remarks and flattering remarks and self-serving remarks because you just, you have no magnetism after that. And then what you say just means nothing. The universe just laughs at you. And then you have no power. But if you're always very conscious of it, it's very important. Now, why on earth I started there, I don't even remember. But anyway, that's what we're saying. Okay? Any comments? I'll, I'll read this and we'll see how far we get. This is actually a very important one. So, 136. There was a certain man in Encinitas who sold real estate. His wife had been seriously ill for 90 days. When the man heard of the master who lived locally and who had healing powers, he went and asked him to pray for her. The master prayed, but was told, <clears throat> but was told for then, oh, excuse me, The master prayed, but was told for then not to go to the woman's bedside. Shortly thereafter, to the husband's despair, the wife died. Then only was the master told in meditation to go to their home. On entering, he found some 30 people assembled, all of them grieving. The husband was by the woman's side, weeping and shaking her desperately. You know, his attachment. The master calmly motioned him away then placed one hand over the dead woman's forehead, the other one on her back, and began to invoke the divine power. Five or ten minutes later, that would be a long time in that circumstance, her body began to shake like a motor, as the master described it later. 
Presently, a deep calmness stole upon her. Her heartbeat and breathing returned. She slowly opened her eyes. In them was a faraway expression, as though she had just returned from a long journey. She was completely healed. A man in Encinitas who sold real estate, who heard there was a master with healing power, who comes in and is desperately upset because his wife has died and still master and master was told don't pray for her but don't go to her then he's told now is the time you know the masters are just moving on such a different uh, scale in a in a way I watched Swamiji do this a lot and he he himself explained it it's um, you you don't, you don't know, as he said, you don't really know where things are taking you, but you know that you're being told to do something. And, and you just do it without really knowing where it's leading. It's a tremendous high level of both trust and intuition. I, I asked Swamiji this question in the context of certain uh, things we did in the county there in Nevada City, the incorporation effort, the, uh, the Bicentennial Liberty Committee, just a few political things that kind of unfolded in a certain way. Swami, did you know how this was going to end? He said, no, but I knew that step by step is what we should do. I'm not surprised by how it ended. But also, at other times in his life, he would say, I'm just accustomed to doing what I feel guided to do, and it doesn't even cross his mind to ask where this is going. You know, sometimes later he may ask where it's going, but he doesn't need to know where it's going. He would even say when he would speak, sometimes he would say, now here's an important point. And he would say he didn't have any idea what the important point was. He just sensed that an important point was coming. <laughs> I love that. But he had such confidence in that flow of energy. So, of course, Master was just, he never, he didn't ask what he was supposed to do. He just, now he's supposed to go to the home. But did he know when he was going there he was supposed to bring her back? Who knows? He just knew he was supposed to go. And then when he's there, this is where there's this constant sort of relationship between yourself and your inner guidance. You're not just compelled. You're always asking the question. The, the part of this one that is very subtle, and I, I've lived through this with, with devotees who become ill, which is this balancing point between accepting, expecting a miracle and accepting the reality that death comes to all of us. And when, when a person is confronted with a life-threatening situation, I've seen um, sometimes we think that in order to be a good devotee, we have to continue to believe in a miracle. And I, I'm not really quite sure what the answer is, but I've seen that it sometimes confuses. And I think perhaps the, the point is, I think maybe it's the point that I was making earlier, we have to not be behaving according to how we should behave. And we, we have to not be behaving according to... Um, if I don't believe this, then I'm not a good devotee kind of way of behaving. But just be very sincere in you know, what is the feeling that's within me. And I, I know when um, a woman in our congregation uh, developed cancer and was dying of cancer, there was no... Um, well, there, in her mind, there was a question. It was obvious that she was going to die. But when the doctors finally said, we can't treat you anymore... She, she said to me in a tiny voice, I know it may sound silly to everyone else, but I really thought I was going to get well. And it was just, she just really thought she was. She hadn't really cognized what everyone else could see, which was this the end. But she asked Swamiji, what do I pray for? 
And he said, just pray to be in the light. That was his answer to her, perfect answer. And when Rich Bazan, who was dying of ALS, asked Swamiji, and this is in my book, what should I pray for? He said, don't pray for anything, just pray. Just pray to be in God's company. And let the rest of it take care of itself. And in that way, your, the whole question of a miracle or a not miracle doesn't arise. You've just taken the question off the table. What you're actually praying for is, keep me company. Let me be in your presence. Open my heart to your love. You know, keep me always in the light. And if you just pray always to be in the light, then it's, it's a higher level even than, than expecting a miracle because it's just accepting that God, that I belong to God and he'll do with me what he will. And in that calm state, you'll know what to do. I re when Surendra and Tushti were first facing what they had to face and all, there were all these decisions, I said, you know, really, you can act like you're in charge of this making decisions, but I don't think it really makes any difference what decision you make. I think the karma is in place and it's just going to run its course, whatever it does. You're not really going to decide what happens. So just do what seems sensible. You know, what seems sensible in the moment, what seems possible in the moment. There were two of them. It was his opinion and her opinion and... If she had a very strong point of view, just let it run. What difference does it make? Because it's a, it's a force so much bigger. And so even just that, that sort of insisting, well, insisting that there's going to be a miracle is a little bit like that woman insisting that she's not going to get married. It's, it, it can be a cover for a subconscious fear that there won't be one. But if we're not afraid that there won't be one, then we can also just as cheerfully uh, hope that there will be one and simply move forward concentrating on the light um, be because stories like this just when you are actually confronted with someone that you love or you yourself are confronted and you don't feel like you're finished um, then what is the devotee's right attitude and I've had, I've had many people too many people for, for comfort behave in ways that they think are the right attitude, but are actually, um, well, it's self-evident that there's tension in the attitude. And that's really the right word, and that's related to what Master wrote about that woman shouting because she doesn't want to get married. It's self-evident that there's tension in it. And, and yes, I, I understand you don't want people's negative thoughts around and all that sort of thing, and all of that's true. But calm joy is the sign of being in harmony, not this anxiousness about what it's going to be. That's where Master Swami just said to Linda, just concentrate on the light. And that worked because it took her all the way through, you know, to the very end. And, you know, she's on her deathbed at the very end when she could still, still talk. Swami said, just to concentrate on the light. So that's what I'm doing. You know, just there was nothing to worry about because the light was always there just always there when she was feeling well, when she was feeling badly, when it looked optimistic, when it looked like her life was going to end. Well, the light's always there. If I just stay with that, there's nothing I, I have to fear. And maybe it'll lead me into health and maybe it'll lead me into my next incarnation. But um, trusting with calm, calmness is what we're looking for. And then, whoa, look at that. He did a miracle. What a surprise. Calm acceptance and joy. All right, any other questions or comments before we call it a night? 
Okay, that's none. We have, when is Spiritual Renewal Week? It's not next week, it's the week after? Or two weeks? Is it two weeks? So we have one more class and then we have a break? Let me say what I, what I read. I read from 132 through 136. Could I borrow a pen from someone?